If you'll turn in your Bibles, we are in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 is where we're going to start. And our sermon today, this text, deals with the second coming of Jesus. Oftentimes, we hear the question, when will Jesus return? But there's a much more foundational question we need to answer first. And that's just the question of, will Jesus return? Will he actually do such a thing? Because that was a point of contention here in Peter's time, and it can be in ours as well. And so as Christians, we know the importance of when Jesus first came, of his first advent. Throughout the Old Testament, there were prophecies of this coming Messiah, and this Messiah would come and he would arrive at God's appointed time to save his people from their sin. And then finally, at the time and place of his choosing, Jesus is born. The Messiah comes and he goes and he lives this sinless life and he goes to the cross and he dies a death he did not deserve, but he willingly took it on in order to make satisfaction for sins, to appease the wrath of God and pay for the sins of people like you and me. He goes, he spends three days in the grave, but then he doesn't stay there. He rises from the dead and in glory he ascends to heaven where he makes intercession for all of you, for all of his people before God the Father. But does it end there? Is that it? As we're going to see today, there's much more for Jesus to do. There's something else that's going to come. For 2,000 years, unbelievers have mocked the idea that Jesus will come back. And that was surely true in Peter's time. They mocked and attacked the idea that Jesus would return. And that's surely true in our time. And so today, we're going to read this, this section of Scripture. Excuse me, we'll get this on right. We're going to read this section of scripture, and it's going to be Peter defending the reality that Jesus will indeed come again, and he will come again to issue a final judgment against all mankind. So read with me 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10. I want to go through this whole chapter, and then we'll come back and look at it piece by piece. Because if Jesus is certain to return, as Peter is going to tell us here, How do we prepare for that? What do we need to be doing in the meantime? How can we grow our trust for him? Because he is wiser than us. Verse 1. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you. And in both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder, so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through earth. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By that same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. But the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise and the elements will burn and be dissolved, and all of the work, earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Wow, so there's, there's a lot there about that return, about that second coming. But the first thing I want you to, to notice is setting the stage and going back a little bit to last week is that you've got people who are scoffing at his second coming. Your translation might say mocking. These are people who who for whatever reason don't believe in this. And they think the idea of the second coming is strange or silly or inappropriate somehow. And so they're probably those same false teachers we saw last week and we've dealt with all throughout chapter 2. But as you've noticed, they come and they scoff because what is the role of the false teacher? What is he trying to accomplish, he or she? They are trying to basically sow doubt in your mind. Sow doubt that God can do what he said he would do. Jesus said he would return, so where is he? Why hasn't he returned? And 
I think this for us as Christians is important because, you know, Satan hopes that you as a Christian would do the same thing and you would discount the importance of the things Jesus says in the Bible. So just as these false teachers are trying to get your attention and pull you away from believing the things Jesus says, Jesus wants you to listen, pay attention, read, learn, grow. Because if Satan can pull you away from the word of God, he's removed a significant source of hope and just joy, peace, all these things in your life. So go with me to verse 3, and I want to start looking at how, what are these scoffers saying? What are they doing? What are their lines of attack? Is there any validity to the things they're saying, or is this pure silliness? Verse 3, above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days scoffing and following their own evil desires. So here we're told they'll come in the last days. And when we think about the last days, know that when you see this this terminology in Scripture, the last days could be classified as the whole time period from Jesus' ascension up until now, this last 2,000 years church age, the age in which we currently live. It's not some future time period, but these are the last days, and they have been since the ascension of Jesus. And then we begin to see the scoffers attack the return of Jesus from a couple different angles, and I think all of them are pretty weak, but they're necessary to understand. The first thing they try to do is they bring this emotional attack. All right, so you've got three different attacks. The first one is to prey on your emotions. Scoffing or mocking Jesus could be mocking Christians. And this attack isn't logical in any way, but it's not meant to be. It's not meant to be logical or sensical. It's meant to play against your feelings, and it's meant to play against your unfulfilled expectations. Your feelings are attacked because you don't want to look wrong or you don't want to look stupid. You know, you, you hear people who come, they say, well, these dumb Christians, they believe this or that, and you don't want to look dumb. And so your feelings are attacked, and these kind of scoffings or attacks can be effective against you just because of that. And so... Our feelings are attacked, but even in that, our unfulfilled expectations can be attacked because maybe you thought Jesus would have or should have come by now. Maybe he should have returned by now in your way of thinking. And the same was true for Peter's church. The same was true for their day. They generally expected Jesus would return in their lifetimes, and that's been true throughout history. Most Christians have generally believed that he would come in their, in their lifetime. And so far, of course, that's been wrong. But sooner or later, a generation will be correct in that thought process. But these emotional attacks, they play against what you want. They play against what, what you hope Jesus would do rather than what he actually wants to do. Does that make sense? So you've got... I can't get this today. I'm sick and I can't get my ear thing to work today. What do you know? When it rains, it pours, right? All right, hopefully that'll stick. So I want you to see here, though, there's, there's two elements to this, right? They're playing against your feelings, but they're also playing against your expectations, the things you want God to do that maybe God just hasn't done yet. And that's okay that he hasn't done them, but your expectations can be used as a tool against you by Satan. And that's the point here. So they come, they scoff, but then second, it's not just an emotional attack, it's an immoral attack. An immoral attack. They follow their own evil desires, and rather than as a means of attack, this is kind of the true reason behind all of it. This is why they're attacking you, is their immoral, evil desires. Generally, now this is not always true, but I have found, as a general rule of thumb, those who oppose God don't like to admit it. They don't like to just say that they oppose God for, for at least the reason of committing immoral acts. But usually, somewhere behind the scenes, behind their opposition to God, is the fact that people want to live a certain lifestyle. They want to do certain things that God says not to do. And so what's easiest is just to come up with reasons why then I can't follow God. I can't do this or can't do what God says or God's not real because if he was real, I'd have to live in a certain way. And I don't want to live in a certain way. I don't want to live in the way God says. And so there's this smoke screen put up of immorality, right, to cover the immorality or to cover the lifestyle. Have you guys ever seen a smoke screen? 
Have you ever seen that? There's multiple ways you could put, put this up, but I was watching a video a while back of this tank in combat, and the tank shoots out all these little grenades. They fly up from the roof of the tank, and like eight different grenades, smoke grenades, all pop, 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 and they produce this big wall of smoke across the battlefield, and now you can't see where the tank's going, right? Now this monstrous tank can escape uh, because you can't see where it is because there's a smoke screen that's been put up. And that's how it is with those who oppose Jesus. There is a smoke screen that they're going to put up, and they're going to tell you, well, I can't follow Jesus because X, Y, Z. But what's the real reason for most of them why they can't follow Jesus is because Jesus says, don't sleep with your girlfriend, and they want to sleep with their girlfriend, right? That's the real reason for most people. And so that's the reason behind this immoral attack here. He says in verse 3, they're following their own evil desires. And so they deny the return of Jesus, but that's not really what it's all about. It's really all about protecting their lifestyle, their lifestyle of sin. And not only do they then convince themselves that the judge won't return, they try to convince other people of the same thing. They try to convince other people Jesus won't return. And this is all an attempt to live free of God. And at its root, it's also an attempt to worship self, to worship what they want. And so the bottom line is, most people, apart from Christ, would rather live after their own evil desires. So they make up a false reality. They make up a false world where God can't reach them in their way of thinking. And so, well, God won't come again. Acts 13.41, it says, Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away, because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe, even if someone were to explain it to you. And this verse is explaining God's judgment. But the idea is the word of God gets scoffed at. It gets made fun of. It's a way to hide sinful behavior. And this attack is meant to tempt you as a Christian. So if you're a Christian, you're saying, well, I would never do that. I wouldn't scoff at God's word. I want to believe and follow God's word. But even as a Christian, you have sinful desires. You have desires that are not from God. And so we have to be on guard. We have to be on guard against this way of attack, this sinful attack. And so you've got the emotional attack, the moral attack against you. But then last, we see the historical attack. And this one's meant to target our minds. This is verse 4, and this one's kind of strange. But verse 4, it says, They're saying, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. Now, that's kind of a strange statement, isn't it? But that's the line of attack here. The ancestors in view are probably the patriarchs in Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those types of fellows. But the idea here that they're promoting, it's a false idea, and it's called uniformity. So that's just a strange word, uniformity. None of you will remember that, right? Because it doesn't need to. But what you do need to know about it is they're saying everything in history goes along in a uniform way. Only the processes that ever operated in the past can still be operating or at work today. And so any divine intervention including the return of Jesus, what they're getting at here, has to be ruled out because those kind of processes never happened in the past. We never observed things that way in the past, so it can't happen that way in the future. Now, that, that's a very odd argument. I don't think there's much to it. It actually ignores history, as Peter's going to point out. But nonetheless, the false teachers are seeking to put some kind of meat on the bones, right? You can't just call names You've got to try to put some kind of meat on the bones. And so rather than just attacking emotionally, this is their idea. It's like, no, things are always the same. He can't come back because all that stuff never happened in the past and it can't happen in the future. And so these attacks in 2 Peter 3, these are all centered around the return of Jesus, that doctrine. But these tactics that we're talking about, attacking you as a Christian emotionally, attacking you through some kind of historical means, all as a smokescreen to hide immorality, that can be used toward any biblical doctrine. So pick the doctrine, pick the idea, and you'll see people in our time attacking Jesus in the same way. Because those who are denying the return of Jesus, as we're reading here, obviously they made a lot of false doctrinal assumptions. It's not like they got one thing wrong. It's not like they decided, hey, Jesus isn't going to come back, but other than that, they're perfectly orthodox. Right? No, they've probably got a bunch of stuff wrong. 
if they didn't think, if they don't think he'll return, then they probably don't think he rose from the grave. If they don't think he'll return, then I doubt they think he's fully God. And so there's probably a lot in their theology that's actually really wrong. And so these tactics can be used on anything. So just apply, think of something, what in your life, what's an element of scripture or of Jesus that you've heard attacked? And these are probably the elements, the ways people are going to attack it. Nothing is really new or changes in our time. And so you'll encounter people who will make these different attacks. But again, it's all to hide what? It's to hide that their immoral living is at the root of that disagreement with Scripture. And so it was, as we saw last week, for all these false teachers in Peter's day, their immoral living is at the root of their disagreement. And as we'll see next week, and if you notice, we've been reading this benediction every week about how uh, at the end of Second Peter, he calls you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see that more next week. But the point is to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus so that you're ready when these attacks come, because they inevitably will come. It's not a matter of if they will come. It's just a matter of when and in what form they take. But you're called to grow in your knowledge of Scripture, your knowledge and relationship with Jesus, so that you can counter attacks against the gospel and against Jesus by using Scripture. And so Scripture is our means and our base, and we should expect that these kind of attacks will continue. If for no other reason, they'll continue if for no other reason, then it's a long wait until Jesus' return, right? It's already been 2,000 years, and who knows how many more. And so the longer we go on, the more attacks we'll have and the more uh, ideas that will have to be countered. But so that's the, that's the negative here, all right? You've got these scoffers, these false teachers. They're coming. They're making fun of the return of Jesus. So what does Peter do? What does a good pastor do, a good shepherd, a good apostle? What does he do in response He defends the second coming. He defends good doctrine, good thinking, right ideas. So Peter is going to defend his second coming. He's going to do this in a couple different ways that I'll try to explain and articulate to you here. So Peter gives a four-part defense, and all of this is going to lead to his hearers and lead to you having confidence Confidence in Jesus' return and trust in Jesus, because that is what we so often lack, is a trust in Jesus doing what he said he was going to do. And so Peter wants to give trust and confidence to his listeners. So the first defense Peter's going to give is from Scripture. He's going to say, this is the point. Go back to verse 1. Read verse 1 and 2 with me. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I've written to you. First Peter, Second Peter. In both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. So he wants to stir up their reminder. Guys, he's saying, you guys have heard some of this before. I just want to remind you. And this is what I was getting at with Scripture, right? He gives a defense from Scripture because Scripture is the primary counter to the false teaching. It's not philosophy, as good as that kind of thing can be. It's scripture. And so Peter says he wrote both of these letters. I sent you guys two letters to stir you up by way of reminder so that you would be able to counter these false teachings when they come. And Peter's hope is to disturb any complacency that's setting in among his people. We get complacent, right? If you've been a Christian for any number of years, you can kind of get complacent. Peter wants to stir that up and help you. Don't be complacent. Be prepared. Be ready to give a hope a defense for that hope that is within you, he says in First Peter. And so he wants his listeners to live with an urgency. We've got to go do something, an urgency of following God, of knowing God, of reading the Bible, all in their efforts to reject what is wrong, reject what is false. Because after all, who, who do these false teachers prey upon? Who, who are their easiest targets? Who do you think? Well, Christians, they're definitely going after Christians, They don't really care as much for for non-Christians. But what kind of Christian is the easiest target for them? Yeah, baby Christians. The newest Christians, the ones who haven't read their Bible yet or haven't read it very much. The spiritually weak, those who don't know Scripture, they are the greatest targets. They are the most vulnerable. And so Peter is saying, you guys need to know the Scripture so that you're not vulnerable, so that you're prepared. And I think that's a true statement for us as well. Basically, what Peter's doing here is discipling. This is is the process of discipleship. We need to remind ourselves 
of God's truth by way of memorization, by way of reading the word. And I would encourage you guys, I know some of you have like these Bible reading plans that you're doing throughout the year. You have um, scriptures maybe that you're seeking to memorize, which is a great thing. And I would encourage you to memorize scripture, read the Bible, grab one of those truth and grace memory books that you saw out there on the bookstand. Use that for the catechism and the other songs and memory verses that are in there. Because after we remind ourselves of scripture, after we disciple ourselves, we need to remind others as well and disciple each other. Knowing scripture starts with ourselves, but then it flows out of that. It flows out to our immediate household, and then it extends to the whole church of God. We disciple ourselves first, we disciple our households, and then we disciple others. And so as Peter is calling his church to be discipled, that's a thought for you, a process for you to think about. Who are you discipling? Because it begins with yourself. Another thing I want to note here in his defense from Scripture, and this is, this is funny to think about or kind of cool, but in his defense from Scripture, Peter says we need to know both the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? A lot of times we have a tendency to kind of ignore the Old Testament. But Peter's saying they both speak to the return of Jesus in judgment, and so we need to know Old Testament and New. He says there, the words previously spoken by the holy prophets. Those words previously spoken in the Old Testament, that that is the Old Testament, and that is alluding to the return of Jesus. Malachi 4, 1 through 3, speaking of this, the, the day of the Lord is spoken of in the Old Testament. It says, For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You'll trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet until the, on the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. So there you see the idea that the Lord will return and come in judgment, and that's from the Old Testament. But then Peter goes on and he says, we also have the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. That's the New Testament, all the various apostles and people who wrote the books of the New Testament. And as it relates to this doctrine of Jesus' return, did you know that 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament refer to the return of Jesus at, at some point? brief level at least. They don't all go into great detail, of course, but at least on some level, 23 out of 27 New Testament books refer to the return of Jesus. So even a short reading of the New Testament means you'll probably stumble across a reference to Jesus's return. So to claim to be a Christian and not believe in the return of Jesus would be very odd in light of this. That is probably what these teachers are are doing. They're claiming to be Christians, yet they're saying he's not going to return. And so If I can sum up Peter's argument here, if I can sum up Peter's thought process for Jesus' return, his argument is, guys, have you read the Bible? He's saying, you don't think he's going to return? Well, have have you even read the Bible? Because as Christians, we have to use the same scripture that he did to defend against all false theology, all false morality. Everything in culture that opposes the truth of God, we use the Bible to defend against. And now, I know when I say something like that, what some of you are probably thinking. You're saying, well, my non-Christian friends, they don't even believe the Bible, and you're telling me to use the Bible to defend the truths of Jesus. But they don't even believe the Bible. And so isn't using the Bible to defend our theology and our moral standards, isn't that kind of biased, right? How can you use your book to defend your your thought process. And my reply, my thoughts on that are, well, at least we have a standard. At least we have something to refer to. Because frankly, most of our culture has nothing, nothing to refer to for their, for their morality. Where does their morality come from? It comes from their own mind. It comes from they decided one day that something's good or bad. That's it. And that's pathetic. That is pathetic to say that right and wrong comes from your own mind. But that is a common common thought process in our culture. And then they'll say, well, if it doesn't come from my own mind, it comes from what's most popular in culture. Like, if we can get 51% of people to believe something, then it must be true. Equally as sad, equally as pathetic, 
They have no standard. They have nothing to base their beliefs on outside of their own little mind. And so we as Christians have something great. Those are terrible standards. Those are changing standards. Those are extremely subjective standards that they have. But you have the word of God, which is greater and better. Second Peter, Don read this one to us a couple weeks ago. This verse comes from Second Peter 1. It says, Above all, you know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word comes from men inspired, holy men taught by the Holy Spirit, inspired word of God to you. And so you can use the Holy Scriptures to defend Jesus' second coming. You can use the Holy Scriptures to defend a standard of morality because your hearers' minds and their thought processes have been damaged by sin. They've been damaged by sin. They've been damaged by the fall. Remember, the attacks come largely from a base of immorality, of wanting to live in an ungodly way. And our friends, who we love, are still sinful people. And they need to be convinced of the word of God because they've convinced themselves that they are righteous. And they've convinced themselves that they are good. But it's all not true. And so their greatest need is to hear from Scripture, from you, about Jesus. That you proclaim the word of God to them, and then they have to deal with it, and they have to either accept it or reject it. But what's for you to do is proclaim the word of God. And so Peter defends the return of Jesus in the same way. He uses Scripture. And likewise, you can wield that sword of Scripture, as Hebrews calls it. So Peter defends from Scripture, but then second... Peter defends the return of Jesus from history. Verse 5. Go back to to 2 Peter if you turned away from there. Verse 5. He defends from history. He says, They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought brought about, excuse me, from the water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. He's talking about Noah's time. But by that same word, the present heavens and earth are being stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So remember, these false teachers were promoting what's called uniformity, that in history everything goes along in this uniform way, that only the processes that ever operated can still be operating or at work today. Well, here's the problem with that. He says they're deliberately, purposefully overlooking real history, true history, the things that actually went down. So if they're overlooking important aspects of history to prove their views, that shows you how flawed their views are, their thoughts are. The first, whoops, we we forgot about that, is creation. Well, God brought everything into existence, into being. He needed no pre-existing materials. Creation marks the start of the universe in time and in space. How does that fit with their theory? that everything goes along in a uniform way. It doesn't. So they're just going to forget that, yeah, there was this whole creation event. Yeah, we're just going to forget about that. But then the second, whoops, missed on that one too, is Noah's flood. You've got this flood and this sinful order of his time that was all destroyed, opposite of creation. And these two cataclysmic events easily disprove their idea that history moves along in a uniform way. It clearly doesn't. But then something else that I think is important here is the contrast. He says, the Lord once destroyed and remade the world by water. That's the reference to Noah and to that flood of his day. But he says, then he can do it again. But this time, he will do it by fire. And so when Jesus returns, he'll issue judgment and he'll have destruction of the ungodly, of those who refuse to repent, refuse to return to him. And he'll destroy the earth by fire. But... Peter says he'll make it new. He'll make a new earth by fire. This physical creation will be renewed and we'll continue to live in it. We'll continue to act upon it. And you see the contrast there. The destruction of Noah's day came by water, but this future one, this destruction and rebuilding will come by fire. And so that's the defense from history. But then third, it's not just a defense from Scripture. It's not just a defense from history. He gives the last two defenses, and they're from God himself. They're from the character of God. So he continues his argument. How are we to understand this delay? Why isn't Jesus back yet? 
Well, these attributes are a core part of Jesus. And they're a core part of how we can understand Jesus's delay. Look at verse 8. He says, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. One day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. So we see here, what's the attribute of God? His eternity. So Peter defends the return of Jesus because he says, Jesus, God, is eternal. In essence, God is above time. God is outside of time. He has no beginning. He has no end. The Lord doesn't flow and move through time like you do and like I do. And the Lord is not confined by time the way that you are and the way that I am. And so God sees all of time equally vividly because he's outside it. And he chooses to act then in parts of it. And Peter is paraphrasing here Psalm 90 verse 4. And that says, For in your sight a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by, like a few hours of the night. I mean, think about that scripture and then in combination with this one. A day that passes is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Think about that for a minute. Reflect on who God is. How all-powerful God is. That a thousand years is like a day to him. He is not confined by time the way we are. It just isn't the same to him. So he's not limited the way we are. And so what seems like a delay to you is not a delay to him. What seems like a long time to you, that's not a long time to him at all. So who are we, Peter's saying? Who are we to confine God to our own time schedule? And and remember that the next time you want something now, the next time you want something from God today, remember that a day is like a thousand years to him. A thousand years is like a day. He doesn't think of time, conceive of time, live in time the way you do. What do we do in light of that reality? We trust. We're called to maintain trust in God's sovereign purposes, even as he delays. Because even as as he delays, in his time and in his way, his timetable's not ours. That delay is part of the plan. What's left for you to do? Trust. And that's hard. That's easier said than done, to trust in God, that, that God is timing all things perfectly. But that's the call on your life as a Christian, is to trust, to trust in him. And the last thing, the last element of of God's character that Peter's going to use here as a defense is verse 9. He looks at God's patience. He says God's patience explains his delay. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so when we think of patience, we think of God's patience as God's goodness in withholding punishment from those who sin. And Peter says, okay, well, part of the reason that Jesus hasn't made his return yet, part of that is so that people would have time to come to repentance. In essence, he's saving people on his timeline. God is doing things how he wants in his way, giving people more and more gracious opportunities to come to faith. God wants time for his people to be gathered in. And maybe it was that way in your life. Think about to your life. Did you respond to God the first time you heard about him? Maybe, but most of us didn't. Most of us, it took a while to be gathered in to God's family. It took a while for us to see our need for salvation, for us to see how flawed we were. Perhaps you rejected God at first, but the next time around, you came to faith. And so his patience in your life was a good thing. And his patience in the lives of many others is good as well. And so, perhaps that patience is indeed good. Maybe you've needed until now. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, I've never repented and trusted in Jesus. Maybe you've needed God's patience working in your life until now. Well, my urging would be not to wait any longer, to go all in, to jump on board with what God has in store for you, to trust in Jesus. Psalm 1611 speaking of just the joy of following God. He says, You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Guys, God brings us joy. 
And if you're a Christian, you know this scripture to be true. You know that God brings you joy in your life, and he has. But if you're out there on the outside looking in, thinking, should I follow God? Know this. This is true. We're happy. We're joyful. We're thankful because God was patient with us, and he will be patient with you, but that will not last forever. So perhaps Jesus is slow in order to draw people into his kingdom, and perhaps Jesus is slow in our perception in order that the growth of his kingdom might come to a full, victorious fruition. Now, Don earlier brought up that mustard seed, and we, I, I promise we did not coordinate on this. But here was the next verse I wanted to read for you, all right? I promise we did not. This is just, it just happened, so good job, Don. Matthew 13, 31. Look at how God talks about the growth of his kingdom. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants, and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. And it's true. It's just this tiny little seed that becomes a great thing. Mustard seed, that mustard tree, it doesn't grow overnight, does it? It takes time, and it requires patience, and so patience is good. And guys, when it comes to the return of Jesus, I am an exceedingly optimistic person. Now, the most, the most popular opinion among Christians is that living in our current time is kind of like being at dusk, right? If you think of the, the transition of the day, most people tend to think it's kind of like being at dusk, and there's this dark night waiting for us ahead before Jesus returns. But I actually take kind of the exact opposite opinion. My view is more in line with how the Puritans thought, perhaps, than it is most modern Christians, and so it's a little different. But my view is that where we're at in history is more akin to living at the dawn. We're not so much at the dusk of history, but we're at the dawn with a bright day unfolding in front of us. Before this glorious day dawns, that's where I think we're at. And so my optimism flows out of that, and perhaps Jesus's slowness, if you want to call it that, slowness or patience in coming, is so that when he comes, he's going to be met with tons and tons of believers, far more believers than those who even oppose him. Perhaps the word of God will go forth, and it will do what God intends it to do, and people will be saved. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory, as the water covers the sea. The knowledge of the Lord, his glory will go forth. And so there's a bright, bright future for the kingdom of God, growing like that mustard seed into a large plant before Jesus returns. But what do we do then? If this is who God is, if this is who his kingdom is, he is patient, what are we called to do? We're called to imitate that. We're called to be patient. We're called to exhibit that patience as we wait on Jesus because we don't know when that will be. We must be certain Jesus will return. That's the whole point of this message, right? Is that Peter's defending he will return, but we can't say when that will be. We don't know when Jesus will return. It could be within our lifetimes, but it could also be thousands of years from now. You know, what if we are the early church? What if people someday look back on us the way we look back on Augustine and Martin Luther, you know, and they look back on the the church in, in 2024 And they say, ah, which came first, them or that Martin Luther guy? Oh, wait, Martin Luther, he was 500 years before them. Because maybe that's where we are in history. Maybe we're the early church, and we just don't know. And so if we can't know when he'll return, but we can have great trust that he will return, the only thing we can do is have patience. And so we're called to imitate God in that patience. He is patient with us, drawing us to repentance, and we must be patient waiting on him. And if we trust in God, if we trust in his attribute of patience, it means we have this moment-by-moment trust in God, and it brings you peace, and a moment-by-moment trust in him to fulfill the promises that he has given us, to fulfill the purpose he has for us in our lives at his chosen time. And I think what that means is we've got to have a confidence in God. 
We've got to have a confidence in what he's doing and that it will happen on his timeline. A growing confidence in him that allows us to be patient. So these are all attributes of God, but these are attributes of God, at least in terms of patience. That's something we can share in. We can be patient too, just as he is patient. We can answer the call. James 5, 7 through 8 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient. Be patient. He's he's getting at this too. Be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You must also be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. See, the farmer, he's, he's patient with his crop. He doesn't just throw the seed in the ground and the crops come up the next day. He's patient. And, and James is calling us to be patient as well. So I want you to do this for me. Identify or think of something in your minds that you want God to do now. What do you want God to do today? You all have something in mind? This is something I want from God now. I want it today. Well, what if God delays doing that thing? Are you okay with that? Do you have patience? Are you trusting in him? That if he delays in doing said thing, it will be okay. Do you have confidence in God? The same kind of confidence that Peter is calling his disciples here to and his, his hearers, his listeners. We've got to have confidence in God. And I think we'll come back to that because that'll be part of the main point. But first, I want to wrap us up with this. Point three. His coming is certain, but yet unexpected. And we see that in verse 10. His coming is certain, but yet unexpected. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will burn and be dissolved and the earth and all the works on it will be disclosed. So we see here, the day of the Lord is absolutely certain to come. Scripture, by the way, often uses this phrase, day of the Lord, uh, to describe an act of judgment. It could be any number of different judgments. You see this phrase used in localized judgments in the Old Testament. You also see it used in the judgment of Jerusalem in 70 AD. However, I think here, this term where it's being used by Peter is meant to point to the final judgment. I think this is pointing to the end judgment, the end day of the Lord. And so despite the scoffing of the false teachers, despite their laughing at what's to come, despite the long wait by our sense of time, the return of Jesus as judge is certain. Peter's saying it will happen. You can build your life on that idea. You can build your life on the idea that no one escapes the judgment of God and Jesus will come back to enact that judgment. And this is why earlier I was talking about giving our lives to Christ, what it means to repent and and put faith in him. But this is why it's incumbent on you to repent and to turn your life over to Christ because his return is certain and it will happen. And so when he comes again, he comes to judge. That judgment is certain if his return is certain. But Peter says here it's not just certain, it will be unexpected. And all throughout the centuries, and even in our lifetimes, maybe you guys remember, you've seen this in your life too, there are these uh, false prophets, and they'll come and they'll tell you, well, Jesus is going to return on this date or that date. right? How often do we see that? There was one just a few years ago that I think, was it 2020? Was that one? I don't know. And then there was another one in like 2012, and all these people, yeah, they're always coming up with these ridiculous dates But scripture couldn't be more clear. We're not going to know when, and it's going to be unexpected. All those people who who came and they said, hey, I know when Jesus is coming back, they have all been proven wrong in humiliating fashion. And guess what? They always will be. They'll continue to be proven wrong in humiliating fashion. Because we're told here, his return will come like a thief. It'll come like a thief, meaning it will come suddenly, and it will catch many people unprepared. Now, when a burglar, when a thief comes and breaks into your house, that thief is trying to catch you unprepared, right? Now, maybe some of you are prepared. Some of you are like, yeah, I got, you know, got my gun under my pillow. I'm ready, you know. But the point of the burglar and the thief, he says here, is he's going to get you when you're not expecting it. If you were expecting it, it wouldn't work. 
But he's going to come when you're not expecting. And so Jesus is going to come when you're not expecting, just like the thief who comes in the night. And again, this should be the warning. The warning to everyone who doesn't currently follow Jesus. You may be wrong. And in your your love for self and love for this world, Jesus will come. And when he comes, it's too late. We talked about how God is patient, and God is so patient towards sinners. God is so patient toward people. But, big but, the patience of God is not inexhaustible. You will die someday, or Jesus will come, one or the other. And at that point in time, there is no more patience in God. And so you think you can just wait till tomorrow to follow Jesus, but that's not the case. Because when it's too late, it's too late. There is no second chance. There's no redo. Maybe you've known people like that. They say, yeah, I'll follow Jesus someday. But for now, I want to live how I want to live. I've, I've met those people. I want to do this now. And maybe when I get old, I'll follow Jesus. How do you know you're going to get old? Who said you're, you're guaranteed to live to be 80, 90 years old? Who said Jesus isn't going to return soon? And so they take this gamble. And it's an improperly advised gamble. Because they're gambling on the patience of God. And that patience of God is not inexhaustible. Romans 2, 4 through 5, Paul says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Storing up wrath. Because on that day, it says in verse 10, your works will be disclosed and there will be an answer. There will be no more running from God. There will be no more smoke screens, no more hiding. But your works are disclosed and he sees all and he knows all and he judges all. There will be no more pretending that God doesn't care about your wrongdoing. And so the time to be right with God is now. The time to repent and trust in God is today. And for you as Christians, it's the same. So our central truth here, what's the point of this passage of Scripture? The big idea, Jesus is certain to return. It can't get more simple than that, right? We did all that, all that reading, all that talking, just to tell you Jesus is certain to return. That's the central truth. But we're a people who trust in the Bible. When the Bible says he'll return, we trust that to be true. And there will be plenty who don't believe Jesus will return, but again, that belief is at their own peril. And our hope is that they will come to faith in Jesus while his patience lasts. Because as we saw, he'll come. He'll come again someday. And he'll come suddenly, and he'll come unexpectedly. And he'll return. By the way, what's he going to come to do? He came the first time in order to die in the place of sinners and redeem his people. He came the first time to offer atonement. But he comes the second time to offer judgment. And you're either found with him or you're found against him. And so Jesus will certainly come back and he will certainly come back to offer judgment and only those united to him will be spared in that day of judgment. And he'll also, by the way, return to recreate. Now we didn't talk too much about on that because I'm going to save that for next week. We'll talk about how Jesus is going to recreate the world. But Jesus is indeed certain to return in this way at some point in our future. And so what must we do? Well, if you're not a Christian, there's the call. The call is to trust in him. But the call is the same for you as Christians. What's our call to response? To trust. The call to, to, to non-believers, if you're not a believer, is to trust. But the call to Christians is also trust. Trust in God's sovereign purposes, even as he delays. To trust, to grow in your confidence for him. Because our role is not to decide how the future unfolds. We don't get to do that. That's above our pay grade. Our role is to trust in God to unfold the future. It's not to decide how the future unfolds, but to trust in him who will unfold the future. Romans eleven thirty four, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has the wisdom to say and to do these things but God and God alone? Who has the knowledge and the power to determine the day that Jesus will return but God alone? And so we are called to trust. 
And I want you to think about this again for a minute. Identify what is most troubling to you and ask yourself, am I trusting in him? What did you deal with this week that troubled you? Are you trusting Jesus in that realm of life? Because let's put trust where trust is due. He's never failed us before, and he won't fail us now. And so let's trust as a church. Let's trust in the future God has for us corporately. It's easy to be fearful, but what God calls us to is to trust in him in your everyday life, in the life of this church body, in the lives of your friends who you're praying for and you want to come to faith. Let's put our trust where trust is due. That's all that we can do. Put our trust in him and leave it up to his goodness and his wisdom. So let's pray. Let's go before him and let's pray for his day to come. Let's pray for his return, but let's pray for it to come. And let's pray that in the meantime, we would trust. We would trust in him and that we would respond to him cheerfully. We would respond to him joyfully, knowing that he has good things in store for us. So let's pray before him. Father, we come before you in prayer, and we ask that you would give us a greater measure of trust today. Lord, we admit and we confess that we do not trust you when we should. We confess that we often get antsy. We confess that we often put our trust in worldly things, things that we can see, that we can touch and feel. And so because of that, Lord, we repent. We, we repent of our trust in other things, and we turn to you. We ask that you would give us a trust in yourself and in your son, Jesus. Because apart from that, Lord, we have no foundation. We have nothing to stand on. And so, Lord, as you send your son, Jesus, to return someday, may we look forward to that glorious day. May we look forward to it with confidence and to be blessed by that day. But, Lord, may we live in our current time with trust and with an abiding hope and joy that comes only from knowing you, that comes from knowing the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, you are worthy of all our time, energy, and today trust. And so we pray that you would help us to hear from you and to trust you where we have often failed before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.